Hello and welcome to Strangers in the Cinema, episode 9. This isn't quite the advertised episode 9, is it, Pete? It is not, Paul. Um, today's episode is going to be sort of taking the place of the original, uh, originally planned episode number 9 because we realised in prepping for today's show that Halloween is fast approaching, uh, coming up this very Friday. We're recording on Monday evening. And so by the time the show's out, it would be just in time, just on the cusp of Halloween itself. We thought it'd be a good opportunity to put in a section or a segment that related to, yeah, the upcoming... So instead of the six of the best streaming gems, which we will still be bringing to you at a later date, uh, we've come up with six of the best films to watch over Halloween. Yeah. Again, not not the best, just six six of our favourites. Six of the best, that's not a statement. We never said they were the best. Um, yeah, if you're getting together with friends, if you're all alone and you know completely loveless this Halloween, get involved with our list because it will give you recommendations and ideas for what you could watch if you haven't got you know your, your own thing lined up or if you want something new to kind of spice up what you might see at Halloween. So yeah, that's why we've included that. Uh, the episode number nine that we were going to do will be now episode number ten and we'll follow shortly after this episode, probably in about a week or so. And we've got a bunch of other things coming up for you. Uh, we've got the usual uh, creatively titled section of uh, films what we have watched and stuff yeah it started life as something like films we've seen recently films we've watched lately I don't know we can't keep tabs on exactly what we've called it we'll so, come up with a proper title at some point but for now it's you, you get the idea things what we have watched yeah uh, also we will be uh, feeding back our thoughts on not one but two short festivals we've attended recently um, the quite fantastic uh, indie indie short film festival I actually covered features as well uh, No Gloss Festival that was in Leeds a couple yeah, of weeks back you heard that one trailed on the show well a couple of times actually mm. on previous episodes and um, we also mentioned a couple of the, the trailers for films that we're going to be showing at the festival so Paul will give a full rundown of his sort of highlights from the festival during today's show and then um, we will also be talking about um, Red Carpet Screenings which is a regular event that runs in Basingstoke that we attended the weekend just gone so Pete will fill you in on a few details about that yeah in addition to that as we said we've got the halloween uh, sort of special segment but let's get in first of all i suppose to our films that we've seen recently what we have watched in recent times <laughs> what we have watched um yeah so kicking off for me this last well now with the delay on this podcast it's probably been two, two or three weeks since the last one that we recorded something that i've seen recently new release i'm sure you're well aware of it is David Ayer's film Fury Um, I I say David Ayer's film Fury really we should call this Brad Pitt's film Fury because you've got a lot of the trademark elements of David Ayer's work um, if you've seen things like uh, Harsh Times End of Watch uh, for me stand out I think he's made five or six features Sabotage I think he directed Sabotage I missed yeah but I haven't got it either but but I think I'm one of that yeah, but the reason I say Brad Pitt's Fury is because the film is relatively in love with, with Brad Pitt, I think. Um, Brad Pitt's sort of hair, face, torso, um, sort of masculinity in, in general. I will interject and just, I don't think it's just the film that's in love with Brad Pitt's hair, face. I'm also in love with him. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, this one, in case you don't know, in case you've missed the trailers, I think that's probably hard to have, have done at it this does, point. It's been, uh, it's been pretty heavily publicised, isn't it? It really has, yeah, and they're pretty bombastic trailers and a pretty bombastic film. Um, it's the story of a World War Two uh, squadron, that might not be the right military term, I'm not sure, my military terminology is, is pretty lacking, but um, yeah, a, a team of guys anyway who operate a tank in World War Two. Um, they are assigned a new uh, sort of second gunner um, co-driver who is essentially a copy typist who has no place on the front line but has been drafted into their team. This is a character played by Logan Lerman who you might have seen in recently uh, Perks of Being a Wallflower which I quite liked. In addition to him you've got in the team there Shia LaBeouf, Ooh, Brad Pitt as we mentioned. Shia LaBeouf. Shia LaBeouf, Sleepy LaBeouf, um, as he has been <laughs> tagged. Uh, yeah, Shia LaBeouf, actually in this thing, probably the best performance I've seen from him, maybe since uh, A Guide to Recognising Your Saints, which is the first time I became aware of him, and I think it's pretty strong performance before his sort of ego swelled and he turned into a moron. So, um, yeah, Fury, the story of these guys in the tank, lots of huge explosions, you know, scenery rattling, um, gunfire exchange. Now, it's interesting to say that, because it looked to me from the trailers that it was trying to be a war film with a message. Mm. And if you look at David Ayer's previous work, I enjoyed some of it, some of it not so much. Yeah. He's never really been a big message movie guy. Well, you say that, and I think you're right, but I think that similar to the sort of rest of the canon of David Ayer, at least what I'm aware of, take, for example, End of Watch, which we've both seen. Mm. End of Watch, as much of it as it is a basically a fun 
um, violent drive along long movie also has this kind of undercurrent or at least nods towards kind of issues of um, inner city uh, social deprivation and that kind of yeah, thing. I, yeah, I'll give you that. Um, and I think if you keep that in mind, Fury has, yes, more overt nods to deeper ideas, to kind of pathos, to kind of bigger issues. But in a, in a similar way to End of Watch, it doesn't necessarily have any follow through on those issues so as much as you've got characters here uh, wrestling with issues of their religion versus the brutality of warfare are the issues there just to validate him making a war film do you think I, yeah it feels a bit like if Saving Private Ryan wasn't a thing hadn't been released then this would seem like a lot better of a film and I think the fact that Saving, Saving Private Ryan sorry does exist maybe paints this into a into a sort of more negative light and also it's hard for me maybe the biggest takeaway I had from this film other than yeah there are some good performances as I said Charlotte Bob's good Brad Pitt's pretty good but you get to the end of the film and you think okay it, it was sort of thrilling at times it, it was entertaining there was some spectacular pyrotechnics in it but what was the point was there any point more than it being a sort of a sort of popcorn fun action movie was there any more point and I'm not sure there was and if you go the other way and think that there is some significance to the release of a World War 2 film in the year 2014 it's hard not to paint the references from the film onto the operations ongoing in Afghanistan and Iraq and I don't think that works in the film's favour because I think that if you were to try and make those links and maybe it would be a bit of a leap or a bit of a stretch then the motivations of David Ayer making this film in this way might be a little bit shady or suspect. But Fury, yeah, some great set pieces, ultimately perhaps a little bit hollow. Okay. One of the things I've seen quite recently is a film directed by Jan Demange, I think is how pronounced the name. If you're out there, Jan, and I've mispronounced that, I do apologise. Um, the film is called 71, uh, and it stars Jack O'Connell, who you may recognise from such films as Eden Lake and Starred Up. He seems to be a bit of a rising... And Skins off the TV. Oh, was he in Skins? Yeah, he's well? fantastic in Skins, okay. actually. Yeah. yeah, 71. Set in Belfast in The Troubles. Um, it's, it's a very, very good film, in all honesty. It's a very tense thriller. Young soldier goes over to Ireland, gets caught up in a riot in Belfast gets left behind by due to a mistake by senior officers and essentially has to struggles to survive and tries to get back to his unit. It would be very easy to trivialise the setting to make an action film and there is that worry when you go in, you sit there and go, okay, are they just going to triv- trivialise the problems in Belfast and turn it into an action film? Thankfully they don't. There's some quite poignant scenes. There's a lot of talk. There is some talk about what the troubles are about and, and how those are perceived and that was quite nice. Fantastically shot throughout, very very tense. Jack O'Connell once again proves that he is—he's definitely going places. Yeah, he does. His star seems to be rising at this mm. point. And I haven't caught up with Seventy One yet, but I'm really really keen to. So, um, yeah, would you say that there are other performances in it other than his that kind of hold the film, or is it very much the the main works resting? No, on the I mean ev- everyone in it is is good. Um, the only slight criticism I the only slight criticism I have with it is, is Sean Harris is in it. Sean Harris is great. Sean Harris is a terrifying guy. If you haven't seen a picture of Sean Harris, look him up. He is just naturally quite quite a creepy guy. Is this the guy who came up in um, the recent film, the, the Visitor or something? Like this? What was that film that you that you reviewed with the guy who shows up at the um, family's home and says that he was in the military? And am I mixing two characters? Yeah, that's up? the guy from the guest. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, yeah. Sean Harris. Yeah, um, different guy. yeah, look up Sean Harris. Room to defend bad guy in MI5. I'm sure he'll be really good at that. However, he's the he plays a UK sort of military guy that are running this black operation and it's pretty obvious it's pretty easy it's far too signposted that he's a villain from the start to be honest so only slight criticism of it um, other than that fantastically tense um, really well handled thriller with Jack O'Connor again once again proving why he's why he's going places High, highly highly recommended is 71 fantastic yeah next for me is something that we mentioned having troubles sort of getting a, a screening of over over here but i've managed to catch up with which is david cronenberg's new one maps to the stars i was very much looking forward to this i mean as with anything released by david cronenberg i'd be interested and he's i wouldn't say non-prolific but it's not as if david cronenberg films come along you know every year at this point so what he does produce um i'd, I'd happily gobble up um, also, have you had a chance to see his son's thing? Um, 
you know what I'm talking about? And I feel like it's called antivirus, but I have to check this out. Uh, Brandon Cronenberg, David Cronenberg's son, no. almost seems like the obvious heir apparent to the old body horror um, David Cronenberg stuff. And that film, if it, I'm pretty sure the name is antivirus, but I'll check it out. The reason to sort of bring up Brandon Cronenberg is because I feel like maybe there's a part of me that just has to accept that the Cronenberg films that I want to be made have already been made and they're in the past and that's where they're going to stay. I would I would think I would agree with you on that, to be honest. I mean, I, I do like some of his later up, but I haven't seen uh, Maps to the Stars yet myself. But I would agree. I, I think his kind of his body horror days uh, and the body shock stuff and horror in general, really, I think those days are over. I think he's, I don't enough, think he's that though, filmmaker anymore. Funnily enough, we threw up on the Strangers um, Facebook page a short that David Cronenberg made not more than a few months ago, which was very much a body horror, a horror mm. piece, but obviously short form, kind of experimental, a nice idea, something for the fans of, of old work, I suppose. This thing, Maps to the Stars, um, yeah, elements of body horror are certainly there, clear stamp of David Cronenberg all over it, but it's a different kind of film at this point. And, and I think that as much misses for me as hits with something like Maps to the Stars, I did enjoy Cosmopolis, um, his previous... Robert Pattinson uh, collaboration. Robert I thought pa- that was probably interesting more than it was good. Yeah, I but. think, and I think you're right. I mean, I think I was interested enough to come out of it, giving it sort of a thumbs up and and you know recommending it to people or certain people anyway. Is it a fantastic film? Would it get on my best of the year list? Perhaps not for that year. And the same goes for Maps to the Stars. Julianne Moore uh, stars in in Maps to the Stars, and Julianne Moore is an actress I like very very much, mm. and her performance here is pretty towering. I mean, the amount that she can do with her, her physicality and her facial expressions to represent the the sort of turmoil that her character is going through. To, to explain, Maps to the Stars essentially is about um, misled, um, self-deluded Hollywood luminaries who are all looking to... Arseholes being arseholes. Yeah, you know, the kind of person who wants to, or is happy to stamp on a few throats in order to get to the top. And we follow a a sort of ensemble of characters who've all got their own interests. But at the centre is Julianne Moore's character, who is joined by an assistant played by uh, Mia Wasachowska, who continues to be excellent in, in, you know, everything that I see her in. Um... Yeah, it's a story of a sort of downward spiral of self-involvement, of addiction, of suffering. It's not a great deal of fun. Um, if you're looking for something uplifting, maybe give this a miss for the time being. As a piece of acting from its leads, as a um, as an actor's piece, yeah, I should say, I think it is is strong. As a film at large, I felt very mixed and at times maybe slightly distanced from the action just by the by the sort of swathes of negativity and sort mm. of yeah just the lack of maybe humanity that existed in in that thing so yeah maps the stars a bit a bit of a confusing take from my point of view i would say and a bit of a confusing film anyone who's got an interest in david cronenberg check it out julianne moore you're probably going to watch it anyway too. yeah you're, you're going yeah. to track it down and, and by all means do that not necessarily wholeheartedly recommended which brings me to um a horror film as is halloween uh, that has been wholeheartedly recommended by a large number of very well respected um film critics which might give you some indication of what i'm about to say about jennifer kent's um australian horror the babadook now, in terms of a trailer, have you seen the trailer for The Babadook, Luke? I have. Yeah, I have. I, for me, that is one of the best trailers I think I've seen in quite a long time. Yeah, and I, is I, I've been terrifying. really excited. I've been really excited to see it, and I just haven't caught up with it. It's been out for, what, a few days here, I think. It's a very it's a very well-made film. The creature design is absolutely fantastic, and it certainly has its fair share of terrifying moments. But for me, there's just there was something about it that just didn't quite click. The end, I'm a fan of ambiguous endings, but this ending didn't really make a great deal of sense as to, as to why the characters have done what they've done. The performance, the lead performance from Essie Davis was great, but the kid that you may have seen in the trailer, um, Daniel Hemshaw, just, he wasn't all that good, to be honest. At, at times, at times he was genuinely creepy and quite scary. At other times, it just, it wasn't a particularly great performance and took you out of the film a little bit. 
it's a damn sight better than a lot of the other horrors on at the cinema at the moment um and certainly certainly a lot better made than anything from the producers of texas chainsaw massacre or insidious or snore 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 all of those kind of really average horror films that just deluge the cinema at all times but for me it was not it's not the best horror film made in recent memory and but mainly because of the hype i came out of the babadook actually a little bit disappointed a lot to recommend but don't expect the great white hope of horror for want of a better word yeah i'd be interested to sort of have a chance to do that and, and form an opinion and sort of come back at you and tell you why you're absolutely right or wrong maybe on a, a so I think episode. It, it sounds like i'm kind of kind of giving it a bad rap and i'm, I'm really not but it's more of a middling kind of good but not great it's a, it's yeah. a sort of mid, middling to good and i said the like the character design very sort of yeah sort of german expressionist character design and harks back to a lot of, sort of a lot of classic horror which i think is maybe why a lot of critics have gone for it and i can i can see why people i can see why they love it uh, but for me, yeah, it just didn't quite didn't quite get up there for me, unfortunately. Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, next for me is another new one. Um, people may or may not have got round to seeing. This is the latest from Greg Araki, a director that you'll know from things like, um, well, particularly Mysterious Skin got a pretty big uh, cult following, I think, back in 2004. Mysterious Skin was a something fantastic like, film. Something like that with... Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the in the lead role, which yeah I think is a really good piece of work. Um, more recently, I think Iraqi's last film, or at least the one that I was most recently aware of prior to this, was called Kaboom with um, Juno Temple. Juno Temple, thank you. Yeah, with Juno Temple. He directed the Living Temple, End as well a few years back. That's quite a famous. That was. Right? That, I think that might have been what was one of his breakout films. I think the Living End. Yeah, that rings a bell, and yeah. it's not one that I've I've seen up to this point. But this one, um, the film I'm going to be talking about, anyway, is White Bird in a Blizzard. It is a um, film that stars Shailene Woodley. Um, of the descendants and other things, uh, really good in um, ah the fanta- the the spectacular now it's come back the spectacular now with um, wasn't she in Divergent and yeah she has been in Divergent yeah. as well which is I just avoided uh, diverged from that um, and the truth in our stars or something like that as well which the fault in our stars the fault in our yeah, stars she's got in that cancer right? yeah, she's yeah. big with sort of uh, young adult yeah. lit adaptations and things like that at the moment but a really solid actress um, by all accounts and this thing White Bird in a Blizzard I, I don't want to cop out of a proper review but I'd say if you've seen recent Greg Araki output it's very much recent Greg Araki output if you've seen Kaboom it's got the same sort of dream sequency kind of floaty slightly ethereal slightly um, unrooted feeling to it that that film had too like you're stuck somewhere between reality and a dream um, in this film, Shailene Woodley's mother, played by Ava Green, goes missing. Um, inexplicably, she's gone missing, and her marriage is very, very unhappy. So you think there may be something sinister afoot. Maybe she's fled the marriage and abandoned her family. She seems to be suffering with some um, or an assortment of mental conditions. The father, actually, a very strong performance. I've, I've just looked up the guys, Christopher Maloney. Seems to have been a character actor who's cropped up in an absolutely huge array of um, of roles, including things like the recent Sin City film, which I haven't seen, and you have Mort. Do you know who this character is? This is Christopher Maloney, kind of balding, tall, ruggedish looking. Yeah, no, well. looking character. Um, but yeah, really strong performance from from the the father. But as I say. I, it's not really a criticism to say that it's sort of a bit of a wishy-washy recent Greg Araki movie because I quite like that and I quite like his aesthetic and I, I will defend Greg Araki even when it might be easier to sort of not bother because there are certain tropes of the way that he makes films that get a bit, I think, repetitive might be fair. I mean, you go back yeah, to... Yeah. The Doom Generation came out in, what, 1995 and I, and I he's not the same filmmaker but he's not a wildly different filmmaker from, from what no, he was they, there's there's very there's I think that I think there's there's themes in his films that were edgy in '95 um, that aren't necessarily edgy now and I think he what is not... edgy though talking of edgy is having for me anyway is having a Shailene Woodley sex scene with um, the Punisher uh, Jane. Thomas Jane himself yeah which was kind of you know just strange I mean Thomas Jane's what forty some and Shailene Woodley's just broken twenty. And um, it's, it's an odd combination to see on screen. And, and yeah, th- this felt a bit like that thing. And I think I brought this up, but Anne Hathaway had a role um, 
where she went topless and kind of cavorted about and did some drugs and tried to prove that she sort of stripped away all the the goody two shoes image that she generated during the earlier part of her career and it seems a bit like this is one of those roles that Shailene Woodley's agent has offered her to team up with someone like Greg Araki to show other directors I can play something other mm. than you know sensitive um, slightly emo female supporting character in fact I can play edgy and, and, and sort of darker and more sinister. Ava Green actually seems to do in, in a lot of things at the moment is just having an absolute ball being, you know, turned up to 11, over the top, kind of crazy. And that's something to recommend this film for <laughs> sure. But yeah, n- not a not a major work. But if you like Gregoraki stuff, I would I would say check it out. Uh, and that brings us to a film we've both seen, actually, that's, that's been out in recent weeks. Quite a lot of, quite a lot of hype and uh, publicity surrounding this one. Yeah, uh, huge amounts, man. And, and tons of like... Think pieces and responses yeah. and reactions, and um, which is uh, David Fincher's uh, most recent effort, Gone Girl, um, starring Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike. I hadn't read the book going into it, so I didn't really know what to expect. Although, as it was a Fincher film, I did expect it to be dark, and of that, it certainly is. I think for the first hour. In fact, before we go into that, I think Ben Affleck actually quite good. Yeah, I mean, um, we, we should mention we we've both seen this film, so this is why we kept it to yeah. the end because we thought we could we haven't talked to each other about what we thought of it, our reactions. So we thought we could get into that now. So Ben Affleck actually quite good, I thought. Um, Rosamund Pike, I thought was was fantastic. Yeah, um, and funny you say about the the novel because I had a chance to read the novel, and it's not the kind of novel that I would really ever choose. And I think the very fact that Fincher was making a screen ad- adaptation of this novel led me to pick it up. Of a, a novel that was featured on the Richard. And Judy Book Club. It was, yeah. When I went and picked, got the paperback in town, I realised I think it's. My I would first have actually probably put it, Judy. put it back down. I'm going to start a new shelf, just yeah. Richard and Judy joints. But yeah, um, Richard and Judy joints. Funnily enough, yeah. With mentioning the novel, when I saw the trailer and obviously the reveal of the fact that the the Nick Dunn character, the central character here, was going to be played by Ben Affleck, I thought, yeah, they've got that pretty right. I mean, as right as you could do with the available actors, I think, for a film of this size. Mm. So, yeah, I agree with you, and I think he, he does a pretty good I job. Think it, yeah, I think it pleasantly surprised me. Um, for the first hour or so, I actually think Gone Girl is, is in places almost a perfect film in terms of the way it just looks at relationships. I went to see it with my girlfriend, and actually, at time, I think if you go and see it with your partner, at times it proves quite an uncomfortable watch uh, in terms of how it how it shows a relationship kind of starting out really well and then it becomes hard work and then things and then things can unravel uh you obviously hope you obviously hope they don't but obviously in Gone Girl they you, know, so you can probably you probably it's not a big spoiler so things do unravel for them yeah uh, and, and those I mean, and I mean it's worth pointing out I suppose as well that you're absolutely right things unravel but then you know from the beginning of the film in the way that it's set yeah. chronologically that something's gone very yeah. badly wrong and then you've got this detail filled in through flashback and those it? and those flashbacks are just so well handled and just so so uncomfortable to watch it really 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 was was really really good I think for the first half then there's a twist which we will which we won't spoil if you haven't seen it and for me it doesn't fall apart as a story I just much rather would have seen that not happen and the film just been this really really tight sort of relationship film with the air of like what's happened to the girl again we all know she goes missing that's in the trailers I really think I just would like to have seen it stick at that and I think that would have been really, really tense. What happens, I found a little bit too trashy and a little bit too unbelievable to work within the context of, not in the context of the story, but with how Fincher has structured the first half of the film. Yeah, and I mean, it would be um, amiss not to mention this point that when we talk about the structure of the film, we're talking about the structure created by uh, Gillian Flynn, who is the female author of the source novel, Gone Girl, who is also the screenwriter, or was the screenwriter, wrote the screenplay for the movie adaptation and David Fincher directed. So that structural arrangement is almost verbatim what you've got in the book um the the book has that same point that you've just mentioned that obviously occurs at about the same point in the in the running time or the the length of that book Yeah. yeah in the narrative exactly and um and i kind of agree with you on that i think that going back to the novel and this is not a review of the novel but i think because it's so close in structure to the movie i think it's relevant going back to the novel Gideon Flynn, I don't think is a is a fantastic writer. I don't think there's too much debate about that, as far as I'm concerned. But when it hits that crucial sort of midpoint twist mark, I agree that I think the 
wind kind of goes out of the sails a bit and it's not sure what it's going to be or how it's going to deal with what it's set up for itself mm. to pay off at the end of the film and I'm saying all these things to get around you know mentioning any specifics about what happens if you haven't caught up with the film so far but yeah you've mentioned Ben Affleck I would also forward um, a couple of other performances in the film Rosamund Pike mm. um, as Amy Dunn the uh, titular gone girl is is fantastic mm. and I think that I've not really seen her be that good in much before to no. be she's always been okay even in World's End she kind of drifted around a bit as the, as the girlfriend and just was a little bit just seems to always seems to be a little bit flat in stuff up until up until now I think she's but. got this absolutely right and, and I've heard interesting stuff like um, David Fincher was looking to cast the role of, of Amy Dunn which yeah again going back to the novel it was obvious they were going to have to get someone capable of doing a wide range of things let's just say in terms of their performance and he knew that Rosamund Pike was an only child which I think is absolutely essential for yep. this role and obviously was very impressed with the, the audition and the pr- previous work that she's done and yeah I think she just she just came to life in this role mm. she, she got it absolutely right she yeah. got the pitch absolutely right but that does bring me and I, I want to get your opinion on this Paul that does bring me to my major problem with the conversion of the book into the film and then what the film represents as a whole, perhaps, which is that I know that everybody hates it when people say, oh, the book was better, the book was this, the book was that. It doesn't matter. They're standalone pieces of work. However, the plot that is hung off detail in the book is devoid in the film of some of the details that make that plot more... It's it's ludicrous. In the book and in the film, it's ludicrous. But... In the book, there's more characterization that makes sense of why actors would behave, or characters, sorry, yeah. would behave in the way that they actually do. And I think for the for the necessity of um, being kind of succinct in the film and getting it under three hours or whatever, I think Finch has clipped away at elements there. And obviously, Gillian Flynn herself has had to kill some of her darlings. But I think then the, it's so plot driven that this ludicrous twisty plot kind of just comes over a bit a bit daft like really dark at times really really troubling at times like you said interesting things at points to say about relationships but very very silly and ultimately a little bit again this just sounds like we didn't like the film I did very much I did enjoy the film Uh, it's Fincher it's very watchable the second half is daft but it's still it's still a taut well constructed thriller I just absolutely I just don't think I think the second half just feels completely out of time with the first half it feels it almost feels like they've kind of cut and pasted together two stories and Um, there were great bits there were great bits in the second half that sort of stand out for me and again I can't describe what they are the Doogie Howser scene (laughs) yes indeed Um, I wanted to add as, as well that I think that Gillian Flynn, as a writer, um, and I'm making this into the Strangers in a Bookshop podcast now, but uh, Gillian Flynn, as a writer, came from writing magazine journalism and sort of columns and, and think pieces and stuff like that. And I think that some of her very best writing, and there are bits that I like quite a bit, is when she can focus in on a particular specific um, issue maybe related to relationships for example there's a a diatribe against the cool girl which if you've seen the film or Mm. read the book or heard any of the press about it you'll know what I'm talking about which is great it's pointed stuff it's sharp writing and that comes over in the film too I wanted more of that Mm. I wanted more of those things and I wanted those those um, themes to be developed a little bit as you said it's a really well-oiled slick thriller the last that we saw from David Fincher was the girl with the dragon tattoo, which again I would describe as well oiled, slick, slick, and extremely yeah. well made. Yeah. And I think that goes for both films. My, I guess my sort of negative side thinks: forget about the book, forget about Gillian Flynn, forget about this particular story. Is David Fincher now just happy to to trot out very well made, ultimately fairly meaningless bits of entertainment? Well, we shall see. Well, I guess we will. This isn't the you know David Fincher feature, we but, but yeah, we'll 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 come back to that at a future but, no, point in, in Fincher. Very much worth a watch. Very very much very much worth a watch as a film. It is a good film. Just 
odd, odd in places. Oh, and, and can I also mention, because I've got to get this in so that I can come back to it later on when I'm absolutely proved right. Um, ben Affleck's character, Nick Dunn's sister in this, is played by an actress called Carrie Coon, who is married to, uh, I believe, Tracy Letts, who wrote Killer Joe um, yeah. and uh, uh, August Sausage County. And she is going to be huge. The, the sky's the limit in terms of this actress. She's going to be incredible in something very soon if you haven't had the chance to see it The Leftovers it's not the Strangers in a TV studio podcast but at the same time in The Leftovers she wipes the floor with the rest of the cast and is amazing so look out for the name Carrie Coon so as we mentioned briefly at the beginning of the show uh, we've been to a couple of um, film festivals recently Uh, the first one I want to talk to you about is uh, No Boss Film Festival which was uh, held in Leeds um, a couple of weeks ago um, you have heard us talk about this before and a few sort of preview articles and that kind of thing but uh, and it did it did look look like a very exciting prospect yeah very slick kind of promotion and organization it seemed like anyway it was going to be a very polished uh, short film festival uh, and it, it it was it was a it was a fantastic event it had um, it had a very different very different feel about it um, as as the, as the promotion from themselves said films unlike anything you have ever seen. Uh, and there was a, a very interesting, eclectic mix of films that you wouldn't have necessarily got to see at other sort of more traditional film festivals. Yeah, you, you mentioned that it skewed quite dark in terms of the stuff that they showed. Is that is that fair to say that the the general feel of a lot of the shorts was sort of a bit a bit darker or, or it, it, it did skew it, it did skew quite dark. And I got a chance to speak to the um, to the, the organisers who put it on, and they were talking. They were I was talking about this kind of dark theme with them and. What they actually said was very interesting. They said it wasn't necessarily their intention to make it skew dark. It was just that of all the films that were submitted to them, the general tone seemed to be that the films were a lot darker than, than they'd had in previous years. So, Right. Do you think there's any reason for that? Or do you think that's just coincidental? There could be a reason for it. You know, there's been a downturn in the economy of late. It could be a response to that. Life's not been great for a, for a lot of people. Um, so, so it could be a reason for that. But no, there were, I mean, there were some light, there was some light-hearted stuff there as well that was good. But overall, actually, but going going back to the event itself, I thought it was a really, really, really nice event. It had a very, very nice indie feel to it. Kind of street food vendors, really lovely little communal area where you could speak to the filmmakers after the films, and all the filmmakers were more than happy to chat to you, mm. uh, which was quite nice. There was no sense in other film festivals you go to. There's sometimes sometimes a sense of sort of separation from the filmmakers and the audience, but that was gone completely, and that, right. that was quite nice. Everyone was chatty. They kind of organise organise like an after party at a local bar that was really really nice, really well set up. Yeah, and everyone was really friendly, um, really really nice vibe, really nice vibe to the event. Um, interesting mix of films over the two screens. The only downside to having two screens, you didn't get to see anything, but then there's nothing you can really do about that when you go as one person. I highly recommend any anyone checking it out when it's and it is coming back next year. It's in its third year now, it'll be coming back next year. Uh, some highlights from the event for for me were um, certainly a film called Pebble Moon uh, by director Liam Furness. Uh, this was a third year student film, which I think you saw. Well, we uh, took it. We took it to red carpet screening. Yes, it's a, a neat segue when we go on to talk about that yeah. festival too. But yeah, I've I've seen that one, and it's a it's a charming piece of work. Yeah, and we'll we'll probably get back to that in just a moment when we're talking about the other. The other festival. Yeah, it's a snappy, sort of charming, charming short with a, with a great script. As I said, we'll talk about that more. Uh, other highlights for me, uh, there was a very interesting feature um, called Skeletons, which was about as dark as films come, to be perfectly honest. Kind of lacked a bit of context, but still an interesting watch and certainly a bold, certainly a bold feature. Um, that's worth keeping an eye out for. The trailer's up on the site at the moment. What about sort of the... Because you were at this one and I obviously uh, wasn't. What about the screening rooms for the films that you saw? Or that at least, the I don't know, were you in two screening rooms, one screening room? Did it feel sort of uh, of a level of kind of professionalism and presentation that you were hoping for? Did you feel it was a bit smaller than you would imagine? I, I wonder what your impression of that is. No, I thought I thought that, you know, the, set, the setup was good, especially at the price point they were charging. It was... £20 for the weekend uh, which I think is a fantastic price point I mean I got to see 25, 26 films and there yeah. were there were kind of workshops and, and Indiegogo were there presenting a thing about film funding and the right. guy his name constantly escapes me for some reason the guy that organised the Rage Against X Factor for Christmas number one campaign he was there talking about sort of do's and don'ts for social media mm. so that was nice and again just sort of broke up the films that made it feel a little bit different the screening rooms themselves were 
were a decent size. There was, at times, there was a struggle for seats probably in screen two, the slightly smaller of the screens, but then that shows you the popularity of some of the films showing. Very slight niggle was, was, a, was the, it was quite difficult to read the subtitles for some of the films because a lot of the seats were on a flat surface. There were raised seats at the back, but the majority of seats were on a flat surface. So if you had someone tall in front of you, or if someone sat behind me, very unlikely to be reading the subtitles. But that really is only a minor niggle with something that, and something that just, it's just had a, a really nice, nice feel about it with the kind of sort of disused industrial environment yeah. and there was like a communal area with like some graffiti kind of motifs and and that kind of thing but yeah very very nice nice event cool yeah and that takes us on i guess to the sort of second part of this two-part festival rundown which is a few comments that we've got to make about red carpet screenings which we return to for the second time this year in my fantastic hometown of Basingstoke. well yeah you know that is where dreams are made and shattered, Basingstoke. That's actually <laughs> on the sign as you go in. Um, but no, joking aside, it was it was a, it's a lovely event, and um, we expect you know it to be solid every time um, we go or the site goes or, or send somebody there. And this one, uh, as we mentioned when we covered it in what, May at the very beginning, I guess when we were starting to do the podcast, I think mm. that's when it first came up. Uh, the last iteration of of, uh, red carpet screenings is run uh, essentially is run by a guy called Seb Hall who supports our site um, is very accommodating when we go to the festival and actually gave us he let us panel he he? did yeah he gave us the chance to go on stage something that that, Paul you've done before right at this uh, this one yeah I've done it a couple a few times before now. So yeah, that was, that was quite enjoyable. Once with uh, the UK's new new favourite uh, U- borderline racist, UKIP's, UKIP's new ardent <laughs> Calypso supporter, uh, Mike Reed. Um, yeah, straight out of the Caribbean. Mike he Reed. showed none of this this uh, side of his character when I met him, and we should move on from there because he was a very pleasant man. Yeah, I, yeah. he was a very nice man. When it comes to films, he's a good egg. <laughs> um, yeah, th- but this one, yeah, we did some panelling, got up on stage uh, on a on a plush sofa. Uh, and um, spoke about, well, first of all, sort of presented the website at the beginning, gave some information about what it is that we do, and then come the end of the screenings, there were half a dozen films screened in, in two parts, either side of an interval, we went back on stage and just did sort of a rundown with Seb, who was asking the questions um, about our impressions of what we'd seen on the night. And, I mean, from my point of view, anyway, I think it went pretty well. Um, hopefully we spoke with, with Candor and... Um, articulated our thoughts with with some kind of clarity and you know if this podcast anything to go by it was probably a fantastic presentation i imagine it was i imagine it was you finally got to see saraw that's james true Weber. yeah that's true which, and meet james Weber, which is yeah which is uh, quite quite the a, honor a really. poster boy for our site is james Weber. yeah and, and rightly so man because the the feedback that we gave at the night and obviously you've written up a piece on, on the past on strangers um was really quite glowingly positive and deservedly so and I think anybody who's unaware of James Webber's work would be you know r- recommended to check it out via our website and then all the links and, and Drift, Driftwood his earlier film is on 4AD at the moment right yeah you did so, mention yeah. it so this is a guy making waves you know right now and going into the future I think those waves are just going to sort of grow and, and grow and grow so yeah we're, we're fully behind James Webber and you know there's some other good stuff on display there not least as we mentioned um, Pebble Moon which uh, Paul uh, here had hello. taken hello hello <laughs> uh, Paul had taken um, it showed it to me and said look I'm gonna present this at red carpet screenings what do you think well to, to cope back we were uh, we were asked to screen a, uh, a panelist selection mm. of film um, and having recently having recently seen Pebble Moon at Nogloss thought that'd be a great one to show and thankfully that seemed to go down very well There's a couple of people in the audience came up to me at the end and said they really liked it yeah, but um, yeah. So it was a nice, again, a well put together. Event yeah, and again, myself, something you mentioned with um, with the No Gloss Festival is that it's something like red carpet screenings. It's really nice because you're in the bar afterwards, and we're just you know chatting with filmmakers, with actors, with all of the people who are there to see the screenings, without any great sense that you know there's a sort of superiority mm. or, or sort of hierarchy of, of importance. So yeah, we, we we enjoyed that very much, and we will, uh, I'm sure, be you know covering a future event when that. Yeah, we'll have, we'll have a, a write-up in more detail of kind of the films and the highlights of that event um, up on the website in the next week or so. Yeah, thought, keep but. your eyes peeled for that. Oh, and I did want to tack on the end of this section, just before we move on to, to the final section today, that we did go to one other, although not a film festival, another screening just recently. Uh, which, zombie flesh Yeah, eaters. of a completely, completely different ilk. We, we Halloween! To, we went to, yeah, Halloween. <laughs> it, it goes straight into our next section, which is fantastic. Um, 
we went to see Zombie Flesh Eaters at Cheltenham's very own beloved Two Pigs uh, pub and nominally club. Um, it was a screening downstairs. It's the first time they put one on. This is an organisation. Or in, in a demon. In a demon, yeah. We're going to post links and, and things to the stuff that they're doing and maybe collaborate with them on something in the future. But yeah, Zombie Flesh Eaters is my first exposure to it. Pretty great. I mean, anything that involves underwater zombies, I think, gets my uh, you know seal of approval. And the other thing I think that was great about that event is they actually had they ran kind of eighties cult film trailers in yeah. front of the film, which was a lot of fun. It was actually it was, a, it was the first time they've done it, uh, and really really good effort to be honest. Yeah, there's we'll a new, be, we'll there's be a, back. There's a second one coming up in December. I think it's seventeenth uh, of December, which is Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah. So if you're in or in or around, which sorry, is great the, if you haven't seen it, the Cheltenham area, and I'm sure that we've got some listeners who are because of you know it being where we're based. Then get yourself along. You can book tickets in advance. It will save on the the door cost, and it will be something worth going to, and you know something a bit different. You know, a different kind of night out. And we certainly appreciate the fact that that now exists in our own town. So yeah. looking forward yeah. to the next one. Right, and that brings us to a Halloween themed six of the best. Yeah, I don't know if, if you can tell. Or... I don't know if you can tell this yet, right? But what we're going to have later on the podcast when it gets like dead good and famous is we're going to have like all kinds of drops and like music and like themes and all this atmosphere. At the moment, we're doing that, you know, in house. And I think as you can, it could be attested from that. Sorry, that was you saying that didn't sound like a proper effect. Oh, sorry. I've 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 broken the illusion that that actually was an expensive effect that we got off the internet. Anyway, back to six of the best. Yes. If you're gonna make me speak like that. Then fine. Six of the best Halloween films. Welcome to six of the best Halloween films, where we run down six of the very best films available in and around Halloween. Opening my opening gambit for you. <laughs> Come at me. Come at me, sir. The quite frankly spectacular, and from looking at IMDb, hugely underrated. Soska Sisters, American Mary. Why should I watch this at Halloween? That sounds rubbish. Catherine Isabel's in it. Okay, who's she? She was in Ginger Snaps. Right. I don't know if you remember, have you seen Ginger Snaps? I haven't either seen Ginger, Ginger Snaps, Snaps. So Ginger this Snaps is a good is recommendation for me. Yeah, apart from Catherine Isabel's in it. She's a fantastic performance in it. It's a fairly original, very twisted film about kind of body modification surgery. Catherine Isabel plays this, this sort of trainee student. Shit happens to her. And she ends up becoming this, like, well, body modification surgeon. And uh, it gets really, really twisted, really, really fucked up in places. And it's just the atmosphere and it's fantastic. Everything everything about there's no, nothing not to love, really. The Soscus is a follow on from their debut film, Dead Hooker in a Trunk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's your review so, tagline um, there. Yeah, American Mary. If you haven't if, if you haven't seen it and you and you are a fan of horror films, you're not a fan of horror films. So watch it. I'm not a fan of horror films. It turns out, so I've got to get to that this you Halloween. You have to watch American will, Mary this Halloween. I will be yes. a fan going yeah. going forward and to next Halloween. Uh, my first pick is one that I had missed until four or five years ago. Oh, I say four or five years ago. It came out in 2009. So I guess I wasn't that late to the party. It must have been I saw it in 2010, something like that. Um, um, what this, was it, Pete? What it was is, it? It is trick or treat, uh, or you could say trick or treat, I suppose. And that's two or three different short films, is well, it? Well, well, sir, well, sir. I, I, would, I have seen it. I but... would refer to it as a portmanteau piece, meaning that there, yes. that there are a number of right. elements set against each other that somewhat intertwine. It's a bit of a like one of them where, yeah, you've got different characters, the stories are kind of unconnected in ways, but they all s- circulate around one night in Halloween. Go Brian ahead. Cox is in it, isn't he? I think Coxie might be in there, you Coxie. know. <laughs> Coxie, Coxie. Coxie might be in there. Um, yeah, the, the middle of this thing is Sookie Stackhouse herself, Anna Paquin. Um, yeah, the basic thing is it's one night in Halloween, you've got different stories all taking place kind of in around the same town location. Yeah. And then you've got a through line, there's a kind of creepy little boy who's in the background of a lot of the, the stuff. And all kinds of sort of yeah weird. The boy is creepy. The boy is very creepy in the film. But yeah. again, did nothing at the box office, and so much better than your average. Yeah, sort but, of... but I guess it doesn't really matter with something like this, man, because no. it's one of those that's just done really good business. I think on DVD and video on demand and stuff like that. And every Halloween, I see this popping up on lists, and I still feel as if a lot of people have missed it. So yeah, if you haven't seen Trick or Treat and you're a fan of horror Halloween or, or anything of that ilk, then yeah, check out Trick or Treat. That's my number one pick. Paul, what have you got? 
My next choice for six of the best. That's, no, no, <laughs> it's getting worse. Uh, yeah, it's getting worse. My next choice for six of the best is Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I've not heard of it, mate. What is it? The um, the remake. No, not the remake. Not the remake. Yeah, the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre yeah. is both of our picks yeah. for number two. No, it's not. No, uh, a, a number the, two. It can go in a bin. The seventy-four original Toby Hooper Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's one of my top films of all time. It's incredible. That's why it is incredible. The sound design is terrifying. The way it's shot is terrifying. Like, Leatherface is terrifying. And it's like about the that dinner film. is terrifying. Do, don't you feel like as well? And, and, and forgive me, this is a bit crass, but it feels as if he's got the whole film stock and like dr- uh, sort of submerged it in urine and then taken it out and just <laughs> yeah. run it as the film. It's, it's just, just the ap- just atmospheric. I, I, yeah, I'd be hard pushed to find a more atmospheric horror film. Perhaps The Exorcist comes close, but for me, Chainsaw Massacre just pips The Exorcist in terms of atmosphere. The scene at the dinner table at the end is just timeless. And just, just the and kind of, just the kind of nihilism of like oh, the family and just the kind of, yeah, the it's brute a horribly, force it's kind a of horribly effective, brutal, thing. brutal film. But it's horror done at its very, very best. Right? Yeah. I mean, I wholeheartedly, evidently agree with Paul. If you haven't seen the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, then get to it immediately. This Halloween is your Halloween. There is a 40th anniversary re-release coming up in the middle of November where it's been remastered from a 4K edit. So that keep an eye out for that. My second official pick, although basically I, I you know, high-five you on Texas Chainsaw, is um, a film known as Switchblade Romance, at least in its English title. Uh, le, le haute tension? Yeah, the, the, old, <laughs> the old eye tension. Yeah, um, eye tension. Eye tension, Sam, right. Um, this one, I, the, the greatest kind of um, quick summary of the effectiveness of this thing as a, as a piece of sort of spine-chilling horror and just brutal, gory horror that fits perfectly with the Halloween season is that my best friend told me for probably a good few years that he wouldn't watch any film that I got out from when... You know, remember video shops? Remember when that was a thing? And you go in there and you get the videos and you take them home. That was a long time ago now, but... I do remember video shops, as do I think everyone that's listening. <laughs> no, we have a lot of uh, a lot of infants listening to this show. But um, yeah, my, anyway, my, my best mate wouldn't take any recommendations because according to him, everything I watched was really weird or subtitled or too kind of esoteric and he wanted something a bit more straightforward. Then one night I came home with this thing, Switchblade Romance, and I hadn't seen it. And I said, it's a horror film. And he was like, all right, mate, I just cave in. I'll give it a go. And he regretted that decision so much within five minutes of this thing opening up because there is such savagery from about five minutes in that it will separate, you know, the, the strong from the weak. And there's, I the think. Bit, there's the bit with the muse score as well that's quite cool. Oh, there is, yeah. yeah. And I kind of... I'm sorry, everyone who is into the muse. I, I kind of, at this point, quite, quite dislike muse. But... The best thing they've ever done is agreed to be on the soundtrack of Switchblade Romance <laughs> because it is a great use of their music and it sounds yeah it fits exactly. I remember and obviously, I Alexander Ayer, the director, went on to do a not too terrible remake of The Hills Have Eyes. Actually, I really like the remake of Hills Have Eyes. Yeah, Piranha and Horns, which is about to come out in the cinema, is also that's now. right. Yeah, Piranha. I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a bit lukewarm on Piranha, but yeah, absolutely. Uh, Alex, Alex Ayer has done some done really good stuff, and this was just super super. Effective and scary and horrible and nasty it's pretty savage, yeah. Um, yeah it's all kind of about requited love but really it's about it's about lots of violence and yeah. very effectively handled tension talking going on from very effectively handled to uh, my final pick of Halloween and have some beers and then seek out Joel Schumacher's I think 2009 absolute shite fest that is Blood Creek um, the only reason I recommend Blood Creek is because it has Dominic Purcell, boo. Henry Cavill, that's right, Superman. He's okay, I suppose, he's Superman. And Michael Fassbender as an undead Nazi zombie guy. Oh, well, that's recommendation for this thing, right? then, surely. And, yeah, it's utter, utter horseshit, but it's hilarious. There's just some of the shot. The whole premise is fast. What is the premise? There's undead, ho- there's undead horses in it, for God's sake. Okay. And there's shots... You remember the scene in Dark Place... Uh, mm-hmm. at the funeral yep. where Dean Lerner is just firing a shotgun into the air seemingly at nothing it's the mother yeah, yeah. you remember that bit in Dark yeah, Place yeah, yeah. which is great that happens all the time in Blood Creek but it's Henry Cavill 
firing a shotgun, seemingly uh, a really poor, piss poor CGI undead horse. And does it know um, it's ridiculous? Is no. it like knowingly silly? No, no. Uh, unfortunately, not. It, it seems to take it. It takes itself far too seriously. And I'd very much like someone to interview Michael Fassbender and then go, or perhaps if I ever were lucky enough to meet him, I do think he's a very talented guy, uh, to present him with a Blood Creek Blu-ray to sign and see if he has a sense of humour about the whole thing. It's so bad it's funny. I'm yeah. not going to say it's so bad it's good because it's not in the slightest. But just to see those actors in those roles get drunk and then watch Bud Creek. Well, we need we needed that kind of pick on the list, I think. I think there's a special place for the yeah. kind of movie that you don't have to pay too much attention, but you can just, yeah, as you say, have a couple of drinks and yeah. kind of make fun of it. Um, oh, my my pick sort of 2.1 or something like that, I've just got to throw in there, Eden Lake. You mentioned Michael Fassbender, something kind of brutal and violent with Michael Fassbender in Eden, Eden Lake, Lake, get to it. Yeah. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Yeah. Anyway, Eden my Eden official Eden. pick number three is going Which back to... Which brings us to horror film number six. It does, the yeah. six of the six of the best. The six, yeah. Um, this one is, yeah, some a film that was really dear to my heart when I was a bit more of an avid kind of uh, horror film uh, fanatic. And that is, we mentioned Mieke Takeshi a couple of shows ago, or the last did, show yeah. maybe, when we talked about Vizda Q. This is, of course, Audition um, from director Mieke Takeshi. That's got some scenes. And, yeah, <laughs> there are scenes in the film that, you won't forget in a hurry um that's not necessarily a good thing if you're of a sort of nervous disposition then maybe go a bit careful with this one it's a horror recommendation we're not recommending this as sort of you know family christmas fun no, just like because, it's, because it is not <laughs> um it's 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 messed up in a different way to visit a queue but it is messed up it's all about a man a businessman who goes to audition for a new girlfriend although he uh, under the uh, premise that he is looking for an actress for I think a TV or film role he interviews a stream of uh, eligible Japanese young women considerably younger than him eventually he settles on one he thinks she's the perfect girl for his sort of slightly um, uh, maladjusted project of, of girlfriend stroke partner s- selection and things don't work out so well for him um, yeah a- audition is things a- don't work out at all well for him No, no, no they do not um, but yeah, if you're familiar with Mike Takeshi's work, you'll know exactly what to expect. If you're not, then as I say, it's a hard eighteen. Um, be a little bit careful if you're you're uh, you know kind of in the wrong it's not, situation. It's a horror film, not for the faint of heart. It's not for the faint of heart. But come on, guys, it's Halloween. We had to throw some of those in there, did we not? Anyway, I think that sort of wraps us up for today. We're we're off to see Nightcrawler. We are. We're about to go and see the the preview screening in our local world of the cine of um, of Nightcrawler with with lovely Jake Gyllenhaal and his blinking face. <laughs> so, so we're I'm very excited about that. Looking forward to that. Um, yeah. Catch up with us on www.strangersinthecinema.com and a cinema, not the cinema, because we always mess that up, or at least I do. Yeah. Uh, so a good. cinema. Uh, follow us on, uh, at Strangers Cinema on Twitter, or find us at Strangers in the Cinema on Facebook. Um, I've been Paul, this has been Pete, and uh, thank you very much for listening. Good night.